brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Well, rock me like a hurricane, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and it's no surprise that these are troubled times, as the coronavirus chaos still has society on pause, the economic pressure is ramping up, And many of the curiosities, concerns, and solutions we've been discussing for nearly a decade seem to be a lot less hypothetical lately. That said, there are guests we've spoken with over the years who have tried to tell us that a major key to global flourishing and breaking through the energy, financial, and political control structure is forming a stronger relationship with the higher intelligences all around us. Call them space brothers, beings of light, or any other term people tend to use, but there are indications and examples that show that while they do have a policy of non-intervention, they can be summoned up for help if you only ask. And wouldn't you know it, returning guest Dr. Stephen Greer has been trying to tell us about this for a long time, as he's developed and refined his process of conscious communication with these beings through a protocol he calls CE5. Dr. Greer is well known for his heading of the Disclosure Project back in the mid-90s that gathered together a wide range of government and military insiders willing to come forward with what they've seen and heard about UFOs and the alien presence on Earth. He's written several books, been the subject of several documentaries, and has sent a briefing package on the subject to every president since Bill Clinton. He joins us today in preparation for the release of his newest documentary, which is about the CE5 experience, called Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, Contact Has Begun, which becomes available to purchase digitally on April 7th and available to rent on April 21st. It's a documentary that contains a lot of compelling contact footage and personal accounts, and I'm psyched to have him here again after six long years to talk about it the disclosure-seeking doctor, direct experience advocate, and the undisputed CE5 contact king, Dr. Stephen Greer. Welcome back to the higher side. Thank you. Very glad to be with you. Yeah, man, this is a real pleasure, though we are recording in the midst of coronavirus chaos, and it's hard not to at least say something about it. Obviously, the show must go on. This too shall pass and all that. But consciousness-to-consciousness contact with multidimensional entities might not be people's top priority right now, though maybe it should be. It should, yeah. I know this has affected the live premiere of the documentary, which I'm sorry to hear, 
but it's rare to be speaking with a medical doctor who is also well aware of high-level government operations to, say, make ETs look like some type of dangerous national security threat. And when we know that's in the cards, it's hard to trust them on anything. But before we dive into the CE5 thing, what are your thoughts on this current situation and the unprecedented level of control that's currently being exercised over this? Well, of course, the coronavirus crisis is largely because we didn't do anything in December and January when we should have. And once that monster got out of its cage, there had to be good surveillance testing to be able to contain it. Now, you know, of course, South Korea, Singapore, some other places did that, and it was very effective. The United States chose not to. So we're sort of following the Italian model where none of that happened. And now the entire country has been locked down. And we have the largest number of cases in the world and probably will end up with, unfortunately, the largest number of deaths. So, you know, it's just a complete meltdown in governance and management from the top down that started in January. Now, by the way, I have friends who have worked with the government or who still are with government who are PhD scientists with the Army Biowarfare Division, NASA, elsewhere. And they've all had this on their radar since December, early December, and have just been astonished that nothing was done to contain it. Because that's the path three months ago. Now we have to look at what we're going to do going forward. And I think your listeners need to understand what they're trying to do is stretch out this pandemic so it's not all at once. That's why they're having everyone locked down. Because if it's all at once, you know, I'm an emergency and trauma doctor by training, and you get so overwhelmed with the numbers of cases, you don't have enough ventilators, you don't have enough ICU beds, you don't have enough personnel. And as you know, there are dozens of doctors who died and nurses that have died from this now. But then you hmm. start getting your healthcare workers are sick and out, which is who's going to save your life if you get extremely sick with this. So the problem is that there's not any of the equipment, supplies, personal protective equipment, masks, goggles, anything that we should have, because none of that was planned for. So now we're sort of you know, behind the curve about three months. And the result of that, of course, is that we're in a real mess. We could be looking at 30 plus percent unemployment rate. So I think people really have to understand how we got here. But going forward, I'm hoping then there's some good news on the horizon here. There's a quick five-minute test that's just been developed so that if they could stand up millions of those, we could find out who actually is infected that may be having no symptoms as a carrier who isn't. And in five minutes, you would know if you're not infected. And once you had enough people who you knew were not infected, then those could be doing something. Or if someone had gotten antibodies to it, which they're doing an antibody test, which shows that you've been infected, even if you didn't know it, you'd have some relative immunity. There's some debate how immune you are, if it's complete or partial, but you would most likely, if you did get exposed again, not have a severe case, similar to like when you get the flu shot, and even if it's not exactly the right strain of the flu in that flu shot, it still lessens the symptoms of when you do get the flu than if you didn't have it. So ultimately what will happen if about 60% of the population gets this, we'll have what's called herd immunity, which is when it sort of stops propagating because there are enough people who already have 
resistance to it. But, you know, that's theoretical at this point. We don't know. And just so I know people who I'm here in D.C. right now and New York has been a very big problem. California is headed the way, unfortunately, New York is now. So I think people have to sort of understand that there's going to be some serious disruptions of society for at least two or three more months. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I know this isn't our main topic, but I am curious if you think a little of this is overkill because the tests I've seen are only 50% accurate at best. Half the people are asymptomatic. Bloomberg just released a a piece that says 99% of the people who died in Italy had other illnesses. The average age of the deaths are over 80. And they're also categorizing pneumonia deaths as coronavirus deaths, which is not necessarily what you should do. And on the subject of the flu shot, there was a study released that the influenza vaccine actually makes you more susceptible to other respiratory viruses because it gives you antibodies for the flu specifically. But people who tend to get the flu naturally develop a wide range of antibodies for other uh, respiratory viruses. And so there's a lot of talk about people who got the flu shot in 2019. are Are they the ones who are having worse symptoms today? So, I mean, they're shutting everything down. And again, tests are not that accurate. Half the people are asymptomatic at best. And this seems like much ado about nothing. I don't know about all these deaths. They don't necessarily seem to be from something new. Well, that's going to be sorted out later. Right now, we have to live with the fact that the state is doing this. One of my concerns is that it may be a beta test to see to what extent they can control the population in advance of other things. And as you know, I mean, back many years ago when President Clinton had me come up to brief him and his CIA director on the UFO issue, one of the big concerns we had was that the secrecy around that subject was so extreme that neither the president nor the CIA director, and I spent three hours with that director of the CIA briefing him, had been allowed any information on it. So there's a unacknowledged special access project level of secrecy that has resulted in people that you think might know what they're doing running the country are kind of flying blind without uh, radar. And that is certainly the case on many of these issues. And the question of whether there's some nefarious interest that has set up not only this pandemic as well as its response is to be determined. I can't really say too much about that, but I can assure you that it's not what everyone's being told. Right. You actually recorded a video about this, and you said that if you told people what you knew about COVID-19 and where it came from, your YouTube channel would be banned. Correct. And there's a lot of that going around, the banning. Yep. But I guess I'm willing to take the risk to a degree, but uh, maybe can you give us breadcrumbs or something? Because a lot of folks are looking for answers right now. They're stuck in kind of a paranoia panic, and they kind of need something. Well, I don't think what I would say would ameliorate that. I can assure you that whatever it is that people are saying about the origins of this virus are not accurate. And this is known by government scientists, people with PhDs in molecular biology, genetics, who work with the Army Biowarfare Division. So all I'm saying is that it's out there and it's loose and the response to it, we're going to have to figure out how to come together as a people. And I think actually this documentary, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, has a lot of the answers to what's going to have to happen because 
people need to come together in higher consciousness and connected to something that is a deep level of connection and awareness to be able to make it through this. But also, we need to start making direct contact with these advanced civilizations and bypass the government, which is so dysfunctional. So while everyone's on lockdown, one of the things everyone should be looking at is, you know, how do I use this time wisely if I'm not going into work and going out and doing things? I think people learning how to meditate, to do the close encounters of the fifth kind protocols, which enable you to remote view using consciousness, these civilizations. And I want to be clear because you mentioned a whole bunch of stuff in the intro that are kind of mixed together. The CE5 protocols are directed towards making contact with what I call TDIS, trans-dimensional interstellar civilizations. And those are ones that are obviously from other star systems, but they traverse other dimensions. There are other beings and other dimensions that are not ET, and these get all mushed together. We're specifically talking about making contact with extraterrestrial civilizations that are from other planets and star systems. But if they're going through space at multiples of the speed of light, which you have to, those technologies mean that you're traversing other dimensions. This is why they're often called trans-dimensional or interdimensional, because you're not able to go on a straight line at the, even at the speed of light. You know, if you're from the Andromeda galaxy, which is two and a half million light years from here, it would take you five million years to get here and get back if you were going at close to the speed of light. So we know that their technologies are very advanced and their communication technologies are fascinating because they interface not just with consciousness and thought directly, say telepathically, but also with their electronic systems. They have, you know, like we would have an iPhone or a cell phone or a computer. They have technologies that are very advanced electronics that cross into these other dimensions. It's called transdimensional physics and can interface with directed, coherent thought. And that's what we're doing with Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. It's really an amazing process. And there's probably 100,000 people around the world now doing this. We need it to grow to about 70 or 80 million people. So the documentary is about mm. bringing awareness, showing the evidence for this, and also showing the science of consciousness. The way this can be very powerful, by the way, is there have been a lot of studies in consciousness and remote healing using mind. At a time like this, our civilization could be advanced greatly by people joining together in mass meditation and mass consciousness, doing things for a positive purpose. There's nothing that good come out of fear and panic or even the rage of whatever conspiracies have put us in the situation we're in. The other reason we need to make open contact, that's the thing that would lead to disclosure best. I founded the disclosure movement in the 1990s. And what I found was that the leaders of these countries and the United Nations really don't have control over these super secret black projects that are run amok. And the problem with that is you can't really appeal to the political process to fix this problem. It's got to be fixed by the masses of people. It really is a we the people sort of moment. And one of the outcomes of that would be we would have amazing technologies that would come out of full disclosure on this. What am I talking about? Everyone knows that these UFOs aren't running using Exxon Jet A fuel or rockets or things from the 40s like that. 
they're using very advanced electronic and electromagnetic field systems, but those same systems applied to healing or eradicating a virus would obliterate any sort of cancer or virus virtually instantaneously. Be sort of like the Star Trek episodes where they have those devices they run over someone. That sounds science fiction, but I've actually been in a classified lab near the Mexican-Texas border underground where I've seen these technologies. This is not an urban myth, but those are being kept secret because if those were brought out for medical purposes, people would figure out they could also be used for energy generation and it would terminate the petrodollar oil. I call them the petro-Nazis who are running the planet into the ground. So this is all part and parcel of a huge problem that's been 100 years in the making of secrecy. It isn't going to get fixed except by people coming together and I think bypassing the government and making direct contact with these civilizations, which would then lead to the kind of disclosure that we're talking about that would bring out these sciences and technologies. So actually, this is a call to action for people to do something besides just be perennially pissed off at the state of the world. Sure. And let me cut in here because it's interesting that there's a lot of speculation that major elements of the technology we do have were seeded from the recovery of alien technology. Some say the transistor itself, yep. the rapid development of computers, the Internet, smartphones, all that would fall in the category. And these are the technologies, especially now that seem to be ushering in a sort of technocracy over us where Google and Facebook decides what conversations right. can be had. And if the economic system is digitized, it can be further controlled. So you're talking about these advanced technologies and how they could be applied to medicine, maybe even free energy devices, travel. Right. But if we have this oligarchy, we can't use these technologies. And as you said, maybe we need to bypass them. But then I would ask, with the CE5 protocol, have you ever been given these technologies or blueprints from them? Because if these beings want us to have them and you're having thousands of interactions with them, well, I mean, let's bypass the elite and let's get those devices in the hands of people. Have they given you anything physical? Well, they haven't given me personally anything physical. There's a naval research lab scientist who was given a physical device that I have a 3D generator copy of that we're not sure how it might be used. I showed it on my last YouTube video on Saturday that we did live. People can go and see this at youtube.com slash Dr. Stephen Greer 55. Doctor is DR. Stephen was a V. And I think what you're asking is something get put in the cart before the horse. These civilizations don't interfere that way until the civilization that they're contacting is at a state of readiness. But they gave it to this Navy scientist? No, they didn't. No, you just... no. See, that's another urban myth. They didn't give anything. We shot their damn spacecraft down. So people think that Roswell was, you look, you don't go through interstellar distances and can't navigate a thunderstorm in New Mexico. If you look at the FBI document that I got hold of that I released for the disclosure project, there was a field report from Guy Hotel who was a, an agent for the FBI in New Mexico, because that's where all our nuclear assets were, who stated that the disk recovered in New Mexico was the result of a new, quote, radar system. I'll explain why I put quotes around that in a moment. That was activated that caused these to crash. And there were actually three that went down, two that hit each other very close to Roswell. One went down near town. The other continued west near Socorro. 
about three or four years later, they found one northwest of there up in the mountains in New Mexico. That was from the same event, but that was a what's called a scalar or longitudinal electronic weapon discharge that they were experimenting with that were in the radar dome. So a lot of radar systems the military have have piggybacked on them active warfare, electronic warfare systems in those systems. And that's what this document is talking about. And it was written directly to G. Edgar Hoover. This is the most viewed document on the FBI website, period. And when we put that out, people went, can this be true? So what you have to understand is that once we figured out some of the electronics and technologies that these civilizations might be using, which were really being studied in the 40s and 50s, we began an active process of downing these ET craft, which is galactically stupid and dangerous. And I always tell people the reason we know that these civilizations aren't hostile is that they have not punched back. And if they had, our civilization would have known it a very long time ago. But the intelligence community wants everyone to be afraid of aliens, because if you're afraid, you're not going to go out and make contact. You see, that's how they kept everyone in the box of fear. So the propagation of fear through the UFO subculture, movies in Hollywood, like the movies Alien, all the Independence Day movie where, you know, let's unite the world against around kicking alien butt. One of my concerns about how this whole pandemic is being handled, let me just cut to the chase, is it's sort of a beta test to see if people can be controlled enough to unite against a, quote, common enemy, which is how they're calling this virus. But if you just replace virus with alien, it would be the same plan. And this is exactly what Werner von Braun, who was Adolf Hitler's rocket guy who invented the rocket, on his deathbed, he said, they are going to eventually pull this out as the trump card, that we are having a threat from outer space and we can unite the world in some sort of new world order around this external threat from outer space, and that this is all a lie, it's all a hoax, and it's all a manipulation of the masses. What's strange is that you have people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and others who have actually called this virus like invading space aliens that the whole world needs to unite against and fight. He's using that language, and you know we know he's a mouthpiece for this cabal because he always denies the existence of the evidence for UFOs and extraterrestrials. So I think that whatever the origins of this coronavirus is, that wouldn't be appropriate for me to talk about right now, because you know if I get shut down, then I'm silent. I can just tell you, I absolutely know where it came from. Hmm. And it's not what you're being told. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, but the point is, now we have an opportunity to, instead of running around like chickens with our heads cut off in terror, is to come together as a people in higher consciousness, understand that all of space and time is accessible through the mind of each individual. And that when we link those up, it's like a computer network. You create this mass consciousness effect that when they've done studies, and we go over this in this documentary, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, you can actually pre-order it now on Amazon and Vimeo and iTunes right now if you want to get it. And it will be live on the 7th of April. But what we're saying is that if people connect like that, they can actually overcome these problems and it becomes a quantum leap effect that transforms civilization by humans connecting up their own individual consciousness through this, let's call it the cosmic internet of awareness, cosmic awareness, and intending 
a good outcome, intending something positive to happen. And they've done studies with this all the way back into the 70s. I don't know if you know this, before I was an emergency ER doctor, I was a meditation teacher and I went all over the world setting up meditation centers and studying the Vedas and the Sanskrit and all of this. And there were studies that were done that showed that if you put 1% of the population of, let's say your town has 200,000 people, if you were to put 2,000 people in that town and no one else knew they were there and they just did these meditations, that crime rates fell, illness fell, emergency room visits fell, violence and domestic violence fell. And these studies have been verified and reproduced elsewhere. So there's this amazing effect and it doesn't take 51% like an election. Very good news that you only need 1%. So mm. instead of sort of the greedy gangbangers who are on Wall Street, who control the whole world economy 1% or a fraction of 1%, let's find the other 1% of conscious people to link up together and do something positive in mass consciousness. That would create a shift on our planet that would be so transformative that the change would be virtually instantaneous. <laughs> Similar to you know, one of the experiments we show in this documentary is the quantum physics experiment that show that when 1% of the molecules of a container of helium become coherent by cooling it down to absolute zero, at that 1% mark, the entire container becomes what's called superfluid and very coherent instantly in like one nanosecond. So there is this big mass shift effect that can happen. And I think that by people doing this, it's not about an individual making contact. It's about enough people in society doing that and that would be the signal to these civilizations that we've actually reached the point of maturity where they will be increasingly in direct contact. Right now, they're waiting for us. Everyone's always blaming the ETs. I go, well, they were waiting for us for 70 damn years to get off <laughs> our back ends and do something. I understand. And I think, though, most people are ready for universal peace. Most people live a peaceful existence. The elephant in the room is the elite. And you do stress in the film how the powers that be want to frame these beings as a hostile military threat, and we can bypass that by forming this direct connection. But when I look at the history of UFO channelers or even the messages of contactees and reports from entheogenic contact, the messages are always these vague-sounding platitudes about love and stewardship of the planet, and we're not hurting the planet. It's, it's the corporations that are destroying things at a scale that you and I don't even have the ability to do. So what's the point in telling us about it? And I guess as someone who's had these contact experiences more than probably anyone I'll ever talk to, can you relay any deeper insight they've shared about their own home world or their existence or the kind of detailed, specific information we would want to know? And why don't they just go directly to the elite and inspire them to stop fucking everything up? Well, because they know that the elites that are actually making this whole situation bad are sociopaths who want it to be bad. There's a great old saying, the wise are they who speak not unless they have a hearer. If there's no one to listen, there's no point in talking. This is what happened in the 50s when President Eisenhower, and this is not an urban myth, I have a document from the French Ministry of Defense on this, had a meeting with the ETs near what's now Edwards Air Force Base in West Muroc. And they wanted, Eisenhower wanted, to develop open contact. And the requirement for that was that we become peaceful, get rid of all these nuclear weapons and not go out into space with weapons. And the cabal 
circled their wagons and isolated Eisenhower. So he lost control of these secret projects so that the president no longer controlled the levers of these super secret projects. It sort of became an entity unto itself. And that was about in 1956. So for about 64 years now, this thing has been off the rails and out of control. So these civilizations know that the very people who have that kind of control that you're talking about are not people who are going to be particularly open. But they know exactly what you said is my point. Most people on Earth are peaceful. Most people on Earth are not sociopaths that want to destroy the biosphere and have wars. Most people are not crazy, kind of like Dr. Strangelove people who want to see Armageddon. But we have to stop being passive. And it can't just be one person doing a trip. It's got to be a bunch of people doing things together. This is my point. And so that's what these civilizations are waiting for. And they're simply not going to do a mass intervention because if they did so, back to this old Persian saying, who's going to be listening? The other problem is that what I've learned from these civilizations, from my own experience since I've been 18, when I had a really amazing contact experience up in the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina from a first year college student, is that they want us to be able to be equals with them, communicating with them. They don't want to be in this position of being sort of either demons or angels or gods from space. This is all of wrong thinking. They want us to awaken to who we are inside and then develop a relationship with their civilizations that are centered around enlightened principles of consciousness and peace and open contact. These other things happen second to that. You're putting the cart before the horse thinking that, I mean, these civilizations are not going to land on the Super Bowl field during halftime and say, here is a trans-dimensional energy device, go fix your planet with it. They're waiting for us to have an appropriate response to them. And instead, what we do, we lie about it. We create scary mythologies about it. We shoot them down. We, <laughs> we don't. Do everything but any. Well, but we allow it. But they should contact the people. I'm not going are... to let you and your listeners get off the hook here. <laughs> okay, let's just stop this conversation. Let's go back to World War II. If the German people had stood up to the handful of sociopaths who are brown shirts and Nazis, World War II would have never happened. But the people didn't. The people sat on their hands in fear. What I'm saying is we, the people, have to stand up in a nonviolent revolution that changes this. And kvetching about it isn't going to fix it. So, you know, it's got to go beyond complaining and raging against the storm. We actually have to say, okay, what are the solutions to this situation? And even to bring out the technologies that would uh, fix the environmental as well as the viral and other illnesses, you're going to have to have a critical mass of humans who understand this issue and are enlightened because otherwise those technologies are going to be used as weapons again. Fair. So we're in this conundrum. It's sort of a catch-22 where everyone's waiting for some external powers to be to fix this. And the powers to be are happy to keep the status quo going because they're the ones milking the planet for power and money the way it is. And so this is where then individual responsibility and taking responsibility for our relationship 
to these off-planet visitors but lands in the lap of every single individual human. Okay. And that's, there's no escaping that simple point. Now, when I was in my 30s and 40s and I was doing these briefings for members of Congress and the head of the United Nations and royal families in Europe and the president and CIA director, I've met with every strata of leadership on this planet. None of them were willing to take the risk to go up against this cabal of psychopaths that are running these covert programs because right. they know how lethal they are. So this is why I took that process that was going on in the 90s and started the Global Disclosure Project to bring this information out because it was made very clear to me from various world leaders, they weren't going to touch this with a 10-foot pole. They're terrified. Right. And so I said, well, our leaders will lead once the people establish a movement. So if the people will lead, the leaders will follow. You have to remember that. <laughs> but we don't have any leaders of the kind that we need in political office right now. Right. So this is why I'm doing this movie. I left my medical career to do this because I came to realize there is no leadership on this issue unless it gets out to the public. The public understands who these civilizations are, why they're here, that they're waiting for an appropriate peaceful response from us, and that us isn't going to be from our Department of State or Foreign Ministry. It's going to be from the people. And so that's where we're trying to sort of democratize this relationship of contact and move it out of these centers of dysfunctional power into the hands of the everyday person who I think, like you said, are actually very good people who intend well, but they just need to be educated about what the issues are and then be given the tools and the techniques for making contact and establishing some sort of increasingly open relationship with these civilizations. Right. Well, let me say, I guess, you know, if we're talking about putting the cart before the horse and the idea of people doing nothing because they're afraid and just complaining right. while the elite run amok, isn't sitting out in the desert and having these CE5 experiences putting the cart before the horse? Because if the elite, if the cabal is there, these beings aren't going to do anything with us because they're saying, hey, you got to fix this problem. So anytime we go to have a CE5 experience, shouldn't we instead be rooting out the elite so that we can actually have the dialogue? Isn't starting the dialogue before the elite are taken care of kind of putting the cart before the horse too? Well, unfortunately, those folks, <laughs> you're not going to take care of them in the way that is normally done through a violent altercation. You're going to take care of them by creating a mass consciousness effect and creating a movement for people to do things that bypass them. Engaging someone who's psychotic, it helps. For example, if you have some lunatic fringe religious person who thinks the world is 6,000 years old and our great, great, great grandchildren way back 6,000 years ago rode dinosaurs bareback. I mean, I'm sorry, that's just people like that. There's no point giving them a science lesson on genetics. So you're dealing with a similar sort of disconnect with these sort of power hungry elites. I don't think that engaging them the way you're suggesting it would be effective. I've tried and other people have tried. Well, to use the World War II example that you brought up, what would people have done if there's a tyrannical government of psychopaths and sociopaths and the beans won't help us and we also can't just like, it just seems like a big catch-22. What would you suggest that people do? How do we approach them? Or how would people in World War II have stopped the Nazi regime? It just seems like we're stuck because you can't approach psychopaths that way. The beans won't help us. Well, no, they will help us. 
well, you just have to ask. Enough of us have to reach out and establish a relationship. But I think they're going to help us when there's enough mass consciousness that's been brought up to speed to why they're here. How do we make contact? There's simply no way that these civilizations and things would have to get a thousand times worse than they are now before they'd start just filling the skies and landing places. So that just is not how they're going to operate is what I've been told. So they're still, I get back to the simple concept, they're waiting for us to open up a link to them. And that's a reasonable thing for these civilizations to expect because if we don't do that, what we're doing is that we're showing we're not ready for open contact and whatever benefits could come from that down the road. And as far as taking on I mean, a bunch of clumsy Nazis are not what you're talking about with the current unacknowledged special access projects and the assets they have. You know, a year or two ago, there was a guy who said, let's storm Area 51. Well, what he didn't know is that that area of Nellis Air Force Base, where the really good stuff is, everything that's ET related is underground. The facility out at S. Pahoot Mesa, Groom Lake, S3, S4, S9, S12, these areas. And I have a number of my military witnesses and whistleblowers who've been in those areas. Those are so secure that they're hardened. You couldn't get in with a thermonuclear device. And if anyone ever did breach it, they have conventional explosives that are bunker busting bombs on the top and tactical nuclear weapons underneath the facility. And they would detonate them and cavitate it and destroy everything and everyone in it. This I know. So the point I'm making is that we're not dealing with a bunch of clumsy people with guns and machine guns in World War II. We're dealing with folks that that kind of engagement simply is not going to work. So we have to figure out what is going to work. And if you look at Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, this documentary, see the kinds of experiences people have had all over the world. Now multiply that times a million if enough people started doing this. That's what we're talking about. So when that happens, then you're going to see a change not only in consciousness of the people doing CE5, but all of their neighbors. It is just going to cause this field effect change. But you're also going to have increasingly open contact that is the ultimate disclosure that will lead to what you're asking for. But these civilizations aren't going to do it before there are people who are showing that they're ready to be the interface, let's call it. And I call them ambassadors, human ambassadors to civilization. And I think that's really the challenge of this. And we need to get on with it in a very strong way. My hope is that we'll grow the CE5 community from maybe 100,000 people to 70, 80 million people globally. And we'll get that 1% effect happen, which will then cause this transformative opening. But also, a change in how people are thinking and acting on Earth, because we're responsible for our planet. These other civilizations, they're watching what's happening here. And I think the word quarantine, everyone knows what that means now. What I've understood is that the Earth is under a sort of quarantine from us going too far out into space until we become civilized. Well, civilized means we're not destroying the biosphere. You don't have a fraction of a fraction of a percent of people who control most of the wealth of the world. You don't have weapons in space. And you're living like you're a civilized, peaceful civilization. So 
we're not that. We're not civilized yet. We're really not even at that what they call a level one civilization where that world is working together in peace and isn't damaging its biosphere in order to have a high-tech civilization. Now, we could be there. We could have been there in the 40s and 50s before I was born, before you were born. But that's been forestalled, and we have to find a way out of this conundrum. And that's what I'm suggesting. It's going to have to be something where it's a mass movement of people doing it. I don't have a lot of hope that we're going to see this from the top down. Fair. I mean, I agree with you. I I don't think we'll see it from the top down either. But that's the thing. If we're in this quarantine because they say that we're a civilization or a species that trashes our planet and is warlike, like my whole point has been that 95% of us are not that. So to judge the whole species based on the actions of the cabal is kind of messed up. But I also wanted to bring this no, up. No, no, they're not see... judging the whole species. So you're, you're putting words in my mouth and their mouths. What I'm saying is that isn't their assessment, but the power is centered in this very small number, and the people have become sheeple who haven't done anything about it. So so long as that's the dynamic, that's not of their making, and they're not blaming the other people except the fact that there's, you know, what is that saying? You know, those who do nothing in the face of evil that's a real problem. And I think that we have to educate people about how the state of the world got to where it is. What are the things that need to change? And how do we come together as a people to change it? I say that we're the children of earth. We are the primary people responsible for it. And we have to grow up and accept that responsibility. Mm -hmm. So they acknowledge that 95% of us are peaceful, loving people, and that it's only a small percentage that is causing the problem, but they won't intervene because even though we're peaceful, loving people just living our lives, we're not facilitating the CE5 contact. That's the linchpin that would get them to actually help us do something about our psychopathic elite is just being the right people isn't enough. We have to make conscious communication with something that many people don't even know is possible. I'm sure everybody would if they were allowed this information, but there's a obviously a pretty big blockade in the mainstream against such things. It just seems weird that that's the linchpin, even though they would acknowledge that we're all good people and it's just this 1% we we can't get over. And if we just, I guess, communicate with them consciousness to consciousness, then they'll do something? Well, it's more than consciousness to consciousness. If you look at the contact events we've had, it's been very personal, very intimate. People had amazing healing things occur with some of these ETs. True. So what I'm saying is they're open to making contact if we invite them. But if they do something that's invasive, that's what they're worried about, Mm -hmm. is doing what you're asking for. If they did what you're asking for, I guarantee you the whole mainstream media, because look what they did with this TTSA and Tom DeLong, who I had mentored Tom DeLong back when he first started out in Blink-182. And he got taken in by the cabal. Everything they're putting out is, oh, there's an alien threat. It's a threat to our national security. It's all around fear and threat. They know that if they did anything too frontal, that the mainstream media, the intelligence community, and unfortunately, 90% of the UFO lunatics would be out there running around saying, see, we're being invaded by aliens. So it's kind of like the original 19th 50s, the day the earth stood till, you know, there was this event and everything that the ETs did was misinterpreted 
we got on a war footing, the ET that appeared ended up being killed, et cetera, and so on. I think that what we have to understand is that we have to be responsible for our own behavior. And one of the consequences of these civilizations doing anything before enough people are educated and open to making contact is that it will be spun by the spinmeisters in the media and at the Pentagon and CIA as a threat to us, and we are actively being invaded. Mm-hmm. That is the tripwire. Look, if I figured this out with my meager IQ, <laughs> I can guarantee goddamn it that these civilizations have figured this out. They are not that stupid. Right. So they certainly know that any seriously overt act, like you're suggesting, would trigger this response of putting the whole world in a unified war footing against the aliens. That's been the plan for decades. So they don't want to trigger that. The only way to make happening what you're doing is people have to make some effort on their own. And I don't know why you're so resistant to the idea of people doing something constructive and positive. Oh, I'm not. Well, yes, you are. Every question you've asked and the way you've asked it. My point is that is what we ought to be doing. There is no point in trying to shift blame always to others. Why don't we start taking responsibility for ourselves? Fair, fair. That's definitely a theme that is pretty baked into the brand here. But you mentioned that they acknowledge most of us are good and we're controlled by a 1% cabal and they won't intervene until enough of us reach out and ask for help. And you said that we need 1%, that 1%. No, no, and that's not even an accurate representation of what I'm saying. Okay, well, let me just ask you this question. If 1% is the threshold, that's not a majority. How can the spin masters not spin that around again? I mean, 1% is a pretty low number if that's the threshold for them to actually help us out. Well, let's talk about that because I went through that too quickly. If you study field consciousness effects and you go to let's say the lab that Dr. John at Princeton, who's a professor of engineering, and you have random number generators where people put their awareness on them to shift it more towards zeros than ones when it should be equal ones and zeros. That's how random number generators are quantum machines that just put out random zeros and ones, but statistically it should be an equal number. And what they found was that people, without touching or being wired to the machines, could put their intention on it in a positive way, and their consciousness then would shift those random number generators. So the consciousness field isn't limited to inside your skull or body. It's this omnipresent field. But what's interesting is that they found when there were, say, two people who loved each other, who were united in doing it, it was an exponentially greater, not two times greater effect, but a 10 times greater effect. So it's this exponential effect of consciousness. This is where you get into this 1% factor because the 1% factor then spontaneously pulls in and recruits a change in behavior, consciousness, and orientation of people who don't even know you're doing it. That's the whole point of what would used to be called the Maharishi effect, where they would have meditators go into a city. 1% of the population would be meditating. The other 99% didn't they were doing it, but People who didn't even know those meditators were in the city became more orderly, less violent. Violent crime rates went down. ER visits went down. Health improved. And it was all through this consciousness field effect. That's what's so cool. So that is what I'm saying is that we have to start somewhere. 
And I don't think we're going to get 99% of the public to be aware of this and do it, but I don't see why we can't get one in a hundred people. And so that seems to be something that if you understand that it's rooted in very good science and quantum physics about this transition, phase transition, it's called when you hit that 1%. So I think your question implied that it was sort of a linear effect. It isn't, it's an exponential effect. So that's why that sort of strategy has worked in experimental setting, in macro system settings, like groups of meditators going into a city, there's 1% and it has this effect on the social behavior and negativity drops and positive outcomes go up. If we did that as a whole civilization, well, there's seven or 8 billion people, so it's 70 or 80 million people would be 1%. That seems to be something doable. I think even that number could be attained in the United States alone. So I think that it's about coming together in coherence in doing it. And then it will be an effect that will lift everyone else. It'll be a tide that lifts all the boats that are on the water at that point. And that's the concept behind it. So one of the things, I don't know if you've seen the film yet, but if you go through it and look at Yes, the, I have. Okay, and you look at the part that's on the science of consciousness, that's the key thing to understanding why the CE5 protocols work and what the strategy is to make this transition, this positive outcome happen. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that makes sense. I'm aware of the snowball effect of these things. Lynn McTaggart, Dean Radin, the power of intention and meditation. It's just, uh, I get a little frustrated. I get a little uh, impatient with this kind of stuff. Life spans are short and uh, I'm looking to toss off that yoke. But while we're still in the first hour, I wanted to switch gears just to ask you about this. I want to ask you about the Thomas Wilson document, which has gotten a lot of attention lately and is being highlighted often by Richard Dolan. Since I have you here, when it comes to this thread, a lot of people are buzzing about it and you are right there in the mix. What information do you have maybe that has not yet been revealed to the world? For example, do you have any recorded conversations with Edgar Mitchell in which he spoke about the document or what happened? Is there any evidence in your possession that could further prove the absolute validity of that document while it is being kind of talked about? Well, I mean, not to prove the validity of the document, I was there and, you know, it's substantially correct. Fair. The people who are listed in the meeting, to those who are listening, he's referring to it's Admiral Wilson. He was J2. So let me explain what that is. This is the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But this was the man who would do the intelligence assessment for the entire Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States military. He asked to have a briefing. I invited Edgar Mitchell along as a guest because Edgar was still Dr. Mitchell, who was, you know, the sixth man to walk on the moon and the Apollo project. He was coming to learn because I was sort of mentoring him back in the early 90s with Noetic Sciences Institute that he founded and then later in bringing him into these sort of meetings. So Dr. Mitchell was there as a guest. My military advisor was there who set it up. I was the briefer that did the quote stand up briefing. And then there were, was an Eisenhower aide who was quite elderly, who had been a young man in the Eisenhower White House who was there, Lubkin, who was a lawyer in North Carolina, and then my assistant, Sherry Adamant. Those were the people in the meeting. And then one other assistant to the admiral, which was kind of cute because they drew straws in his executive office pool to see who would get to be on the meeting because everyone wanted to hear what was going on. 
Now, the backdrop for that meeting, and this comes out in various ways through that document you're referring to, is I had gotten through my military advisor, he's since retired, who's mentioned in that document, Commander Will Miller, a briefing to be delivered to the Admiral before we had the, in, in the meeting in his office in the Pentagon. And this was in April of 1997. And he got that portfolio of documents and information. On the top of it was a National Reconnaissance Office, NRO, secret document from Nellis Air Force Base, Area 51, that was warning of a group of people who were trying to spy on what was going on there. And they had a security lockdown. But that document was taken and given to me, I won't say by whom, and it listed the project code names for the super secret projects dealing with ETs and UFOs. That document was on the top of the pile of what I sent to the Admiral, Admiral Wilson. As a result of that, he made an inquiry through one of those compartments that has the code numbers and code names on the document. And by the way, that's in the documentary Unacknowledged, and it's in the book Unacknowledged, which is available for anyone to get who knows how to read. You'll see this document. It's in there. So the admiral, when he got hold of one of these, he was a contractor. Of course, all the really hot stuff's done by contractors. Lockheed Skunk Works and Northrop Grumman, my uncle's old company. And what you find is those guys really know what's happening because they're the ones actually doing the work on the technologies and what have you. So the government agencies just contract with the tech companies and the what they call WFO work for others. Right. Contracting. So when Admiral Wilson got hold of this particular codenamed compartment that was an unacknowledged special access project, and he admits this in this memo you're referring to, he was denied access and was basically threatened, one of his stars being removed from his lapel. And by the time I got to the meeting, the Admiral was very shaken, very angry, and I think rather frightened, because he realized not only was all this true, but that he, as a senior official in the Pentagon responsible for putting together the intelligence briefings for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was being denied access because the people on the other end of the phone line said to him, he said, look, I'm Admiral Wilson, I'm J2. They said, oh, yes, sir, we know who you are, is what he told me. And he says, well, I want to be read into, which is military speaker briefed, on this project. And these contractors said, Admiral, sir, you don't have a need to know. He says, what do you mean I don't have a need to know? I'm the goddamn head of intelligence joint staff. They said, sir, we will not discuss this with you. And they basically hung up. So initially, he was completely denied any sort of access. He then began to work the system and got a few people in various offices that are named in that memo to give him some information. But he was never allowed to be really read into it. And he had found that, in fact, his boss further up, it was the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is like the CIA for the Pentagon. Subsequent to this meeting, I briefed the man that would have been his boss. It was General Patrick Hughes, who is a three-star general, who was the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. And he, similarly, after we got materials to him, was denied access. I had a meeting at his office with 
a couple of people and one of his top aides, two of them, and my military advisor. And General Hughes said, look, I've made inquiries into this. They won't tell me a goddamn thing. So that's how dangerous this is, is that you have people who would like to know about this, who may be very good people in the military and government that are being denied access. And they have decapitated the government, not just of our country, but of others. This obviously is treasonous and illegal and unconstitutional. And that's why after I ran through the system of the executive, the president, CIA director, Pentagon, and then I briefed members of Congress, Senate Intelligence Committee members, et cetera, and none of them were given access, but also none of them wanted to push the system because they were threatened with their careers, and some of them were threatened with their lives being terminated. So at that point, I realized I had to bring this public, and that resulted in the 2001 National Press Club Disclosure Project launch. That happened 19 years ago. So I'm just trying to give your listeners a little overview of my 30-year journey through this nightmare. <laughs> sure. And it's been inordinately stressful, as you can imagine. For a young doctor, I mean, imagine being in your 30s, briefing the director of the CIA and finding out that he's been denied access. And, you know, I'm going, this cannot be true, but it is. It's not a conspiracy theory. I care less about all the conspiracy. I only tell people the facts that I know from direct meetings I've had with these sort of officials or direct contact I've had with the ETs. So that's just what my role is in this. But it's not a pretty picture. There's nothing controversial about that document. It is substantially correct. It doesn't tell all the story that I just shared with you. And there's more to this, but we don't have time to go into it about how all these things evolve and you know what the consequences of that meeting were and things like that. But, but you know, you can read the memo and it clearly shows that the admiral was threatened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely did not mean to imply it's not legit or substantiated. I agree with uh, Richard Dolan when he says it's a real milestone. Uh, well, Richard I, Dolan has no knowledge of this event at all. None. Oh, well, I guess I was. that's just where I heard it from initially. So I was just he, curious no, well, if there was he, added he context. The, he, let me correct what I said. He wasn't at the meeting. Right, right. That's why I was asking you because I know right, that so, you so, were. Okay, let, let, I know so, that you were. I just heard about it from him. So I was asking you if there was added context to the story since you were so directly involved. And I know that he wasn't, but he is a, a fan of the document. He's an advocate of its authenticity and its importance. Yeah, there's no controversy around it. I mean, it absolutely happened. And, you know, Edgar Mitchell was so curious about all of this, obviously, although he back in those days and certainly when I was doing I did a briefing for the board of directors of noetic sciences. And then that evening also Senator Claiborne Pell was there and some other folks. And they're all very, very interested in the issue. But Edgar Mitchell really was wanting to learn about this because he knew that we weren't alone and that the implications were great. And he also came to realize from his experience going to the moon and back so he sort of had this cosmic consciousness experience, which is why he started the Noetic Sciences Institute to study consciousness and field effect of consciousness, that you know, he had this realization. And of course, one of the reasons the Disclosure Project happened, most people don't know this, was because we had successfully made contact with the ETs in 1992 that ended up being in the Pensacola newspaper that next morning, a picture of this 
UFO that came in after we did these protocols and contacted them. And after that, the intelligence community, both the white hats and the bad guys contacted me. And as I said, the rest is history. That happened in 92, March. And then in April of 92, I was approached by uh, people from Army Intelligence and CIA and NSA at a meeting. And what I learned was that they were very, very angry that we had figured out how to bypass their control and make contact. So to give you an idea how powerful the CE5 protocols are, that if people study them and do them and do them with sincerity and a clear intention, pure heart, they work and they work consistently for people all over the world. But see, these guys are control freaks, man. This is totally outside of their control because they can't control that. So my point is that if millions of people start doing that, it's going to be point set match. Of course, first, we had to get the information out through the disclosure project that we're not alone. Now, more than half the population accepts that the UFOs are real. Now we need to bring it to this next level where people, instead of just informationally knowing they're out there, begin to do something constructive and edifying and positive and good for our civilization by joining together in consciousness and making contact. And notwithstanding also that the process of the meditations and learning to do the remote viewing and becoming a seer is incredibly healing for an individual and very just a beautiful spiritual experience for everyone that does it. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of benefits of doing it. There's no harm in doing it. And if I'm correct that these civilizations are waiting for sort of a critical mass of humans to reach out to them, it really would be the big game changer when we get enough folks joined together doing this process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man, this has been a lot of fun. I do appreciate your passion and dedication. I actually sure. hope to try out the CE5 protocol with a local San Diego group sometime. Oh, you should. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. And I do have to ask you this on behalf of the critics out there. It's going to take me a minute to get out, but Definitely, I will give you space to answer. And I don't fault a person for making money. That's the game we're playing, and it's out of our hands to change it, and people pay for this show even. But your latest event was a six-night outing for a group of 25 people, came with a price tag of $2,980, basically three grand. And this did not include accommodations or meals. You talk about this conscious communication as like a human birthright. And repeat in the film how important it is that we all bypass the control structure and make that direct contact. But three grand is a barrier of entry that a lot of people cannot cross. And for and they don't need to come because we have everything out on the internet for free. So if if you have a computer, there's something called YouTube, and then we have a website, seriousdisclosure.com. All the meditations are there. I've done whole training things that are workshops that are hours and hours long that are there. But if someone wants to come on a small thing with me personally, that's a fundraising thing because guess what? Our mailing list alone costs $6,000 a year at Constant Contact to maintain. You know, with me not working as a doctor, I can't fund everything myself. So to all the kvetching people out there, you can't run a global operation with zero income. All right. Even if I personally have given up $12 million in income as a doctor, which I have. So to all those sort of people, if you don't want to come on one of those events, you don't have to because we have all the tools out there for you to do it on your own. And if you don't want to do that, then don't do it. But, you know, it's like you can't go into a, anywhere. You know, I 
I think it's great for people to be able to fly and travel and see the world, but you usually have to, there's a cost to doing it. So we can't do what we're doing. And by the way, we don't have an office. We don't have a staff. My wife, who will be 72 this year, and I, with some volunteers, run this whole thing. But there are a lot of expenses. And I think that if people don't want to support it, then that's the statement they can make. They don't need to support it. Fair. And again, you know, everyone is free to charge whatever they want for whatever they do. That's the country we live in. But I guess I would just wonder how even these beings themselves would feel about that. But this is the criticism I read most often. And I'm well, just... Well, then how would we... If I said I'm going to a place on this week, there'd be 5,000 people there. We couldn't manage it. So those are leadership events. In other words, those are intended to be people who want a whole week in a small group to be trained by me to go out and then form teams and educate other people about it. Okay. You know, that there are other things that we do. I was going to do this contact in the desert where we were going to have a thousand people out under the stars, out in this, I guess, a golf course or something. But that got canceled yesterday because of this coronavirus. So, you know, we try to do things that are open to the larger numbers. But if we're going to do something where it's really an intensive for training people that only have 20, 25 people there, which is what those are those are not things that are enormous gathering, right. then we try to make it so it's people who really want to make a commitment and go forward and be sort of people who train other folks around the world. And that helps then defray these other costs because, you know, it'd be great if you know someone wealthy enough to just underwrite all the overhead and costs for what we do, you know, let me know. But otherwise, <laughs> there's going to have to be some charges. I mean, I don't know how the people who ask questions like that, I go, I don't know how you're living. Maybe you have a trust fund, but in the real world, you actually have to pay your obligations. Very true. I get criticism all the time for charging for that second hour, but it is like, do we do, no one does what they do for free, especially if they do it well. It's so hard to even do one thing well. You want to get compensated. But so you are just saying that for in, in those situations, for that three grand, people aren't really getting anything that isn't online available for free, except for like your personal hands on touch. Yeah. I guess you can diminish it as much as you'd like, but a lot of people- oh, I'm not trying come, to diminish. A lot of people who come to that would actually enjoy that. And I would, the one-on-one, -on -one, I mean, the small group thing is a very powerful, a lot of people, for example, who've been doing meditation retreats for 20 years have spent tens of thousands of dollars, say that in that week, they advance more in meditation and remote viewing than they've had in 20 years. So it's a very powerful- program and people enjoy it. The people who don't enjoy it don't come. I mean, it's only three times a year. And this year, we'd probably be lucky if we get two. And so it provides some revenue for what we're doing. And I've always felt that if people don't like that, they can get all the things that I put out there. 99.9% .9 of everything we do is on the internet for free. Fair, fair. Yes. And expertise does have value. So just had to ask, you know, we no, don't like I to mean, leave anything on the who table. Wanna, you know, I guess you have a big sort of like troll crowd in your following who says Not at all. Like that, but, Not at all. But, you know, my, my point is that if that's an issue for people, don't do it. I mean, I'm not holding a gun to anyone's head. I'm just saying that, you know, we actually do have expenses because we're trying to do a global project. And if people, you know, want to support it, we appreciate it. And if they don't, then it's a free world. You don't have to support it. Understood. Yes. I would not say a large part of this audience is trolls by any means. I got that information from just reading up on 
the protocol itself outside of my own audience. My audience doesn't know who the guest is until they tune on the show. Oh, well, I mean, you, I don't know how much you get. On, if you get on the Internet, anyone who has. Yeah, I'm just defending the audience. <laughs> anyone that's who's well known in the public, it's going to have thousands and thousands of derogatory and nasty things. I mean, there's no I made my peace with that <laughs> a couple of decades ago, and I just don't think that's an indication of where the conversation should be going. Sure, sure. I'm just defending my audience and saying that didn't come from them. Came from okay, the good. internet, but had to mm -hmm. ask. But again, I do appreciate your time and dedication. I really did enjoy the film, and a lot of the footage captured is pretty amazing. Even the anecdote about healing deafness, which I have a very personal interest in. But regardless, I think people should see it. And um, I'm sorry about the live premiere being canceled. But before we go, what else would you like to leave people with? Oh, Links, way, social media canceled. stuff. It's, it's not canceled. It's just being postponed. So we hope later this summer when things calm down, we will have that L.A. premiere. Fair. Great. And is there anything else you want to tell people about links, social media, accessing the film just before we call it in? Yeah, well, everyone can pre-order it now on Amazon and iTunes and Vimeo. And also, we're still asking people to help support, you know, 100% of the cost of getting the word out to the public on this to get this 1% effect is being borne by us, not the distribution company. So we're trying to still raise funds to do that. They can help us if they're so inclined, even if it's a dollar or $10 at DE5film.com. Because the more support we have there, the more we'll be able to move this out and educate a wider and wider audience over the next year. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well said. It seems like this stuff is yielding results. I hope those who are interested do check out the film for themselves. And I hope we get past this virus lockdown sooner rather than later. But thanks again and take care. All right. Have a good one. You too. And boom goes the dynamite, people. Dr. Stephen Greer. I obviously have mixed feelings here because his disclosure project was something I really gravitated to when I was in my early 20s. I remember my first real long road trip from St. Louis to California and how it was accompanied by me and my buddies listening to the Disclosure Project testimonies while we drove through the desert at night, seeing the sky lit up like it is out there for the first time, kind of creeping ourselves out. And it was a very fond memory. And now that I have this podcast and I've grown up a little bit, I also realize how hard it is to put something together like that. And also, this documentary, it is a pretty good representation of the CE5 experience, if you're into that. There is some compelling footage there, for sure. But I've been known to watch a pretty mediocre two-hour documentary just to see a few good shots of orbs or crafts or beans, so factor that in, too. But right off the bat, I felt like we just clashed over the coronavirus stuff, and I never like to interrupt guests, but I also know that if you want to hear some of those opinions, you'll just watch CNN. And it's a risk we run when we have someone here for their very specific niche, and then I try to ask them about things going on outside of that. But with this COVID stuff, I feel like it's weird to not at least mention it. And he is a doctor, and he apparently knows the cabal in charge doesn't mean well for us, so I was just a bit surprised by how far apart we were on that. And maybe I was in some kind of mood, or maybe our personalities just clash, but I felt like it was a pretty defensive or passive-aggressive interview. 
I thought even my tougher questions were still pretty tame. They really weren't meant to be personal, but I feel like he threw out a couple little jabs at me and the audience over them, cut me off a few times, that kind of stuff. Maybe he has some personal issue with Richard Dolan that I don't know about, but he didn't seem to like me bringing him up either. And I was trying to give him props about the Wilson memo and just ask for those who maybe still have some questions, is there any extra context we can give to validate those documents? That's all I was really trying to say. But when I compare and contrast this interview with the recent interview with Richard, it just seems like night and day in terms of who I communicate with better. And again, no real problem with the CE5 initiative itself. I actually met with a local group a few months back who wanted to vet me and see if they'd allow me in. It was pleasant. I got the okay. But since then, I just haven't found the time to actually dedicate to an overnight trip out in the desert. I guess one of the things I'm hung up on, which clearly came out in the interview, is that I just sense a catch-22 that reminds me of the way conventional religions talk about God. God made us, and he loves us, but if we don't have faith, even though our world isn't designed to give us a lot of reasons to have it, he's going to burn us eternally. It's like these beings, they're there, they want to help. They know most of us are kind, good people, and we're only being held back by a few cabals at the top of the pyramid, but they just can't interfere because not enough of us are contacting them. And these beings give us messages of love and light and a yearning for universal peace and a positive relationship, but they don't give us any actionable steps to work towards that world when it's sort of out of our hands. They don't give us anything we can use to beat the elite strategically. No hermetic-style bodies of knowledge to push us further. I don't know. Obviously, Dr. Greer responded to those questions that I had, but I just am not that convinced. And of course, I'm just a simple stoner college dropout with a microphone. It doesn't really matter what I think. I'm no expert. And I never try to make interviews personal. They're supposed to just be about the material and the ideas presented. But Dr. Greer would say things like, well, you seem to be resistant to people doing something positive or constructive. And I just have to laugh. That's so funny because that's been a central theme of this show. Personal responsibility and tools to live a good life despite the machinations of the big machine. But when he said that, I just felt like I had to move on because we were going in circles over these beings want to help us, but they can't intervene without our say. 95% of people aren't the problem. They want us to do something ourselves. We don't overcome the system because it's too entrenched. They'd love to help, but we need to take responsibility for ourselves, but we're not the ones doing wrong by the planet. I'm sounding so negative. And again, I do think you can make contact this way. That's really the crux of what's important. It's just that when we get into this idea that these protocols could result in a global sweeping change and widespread help from these beings, it starts to sound like a UFO religion. And that's kind of what bothers me. And Dr. Greer seems to know and have meetings with a lot of the elite, but he can't seem to get them to stop wrecking the planet and join our space brothers. I was going to ask a question about his early association with Lawrence Rockefeller, but I felt like it was overkill, I guess. 
And it got even more heated when we went into the second hour. I asked about the similarities between this contact protocol and indigenous methods of contact, and I felt like that wasn't a very welcomed comparison. I personally think it makes CE5 seem more valuable and more valid if we can say that something of a similar shape has been done for the whole span of human existence. But when you're trying to sell overnights that don't include a place to stay for three grand a person, I guess you don't want it to look like you're co-opting an indigenous practice. And look, as I tried to say, anyone can charge anything for what they want to do. If I was doing overnight events, I'd probably get sick of doing them and eventually say, well, I guess for three grand I'll do it, sure. I don't really like speaking at conferences, but if someone's going to pay me enough money to go through all that preparation and the nerves, then sure. But in the very specific case of contact with benevolent Space Brothers, it seems like a touchy thing to monetize. I'm sorry. Maybe I'm a hypocrite. And people will see that distinction as frivolous, but that's just how I feel. But just to tell you about that second hour and stop going on these tangents, as I mentioned, I asked about how similar the CE5 protocol is to ancient and indigenous spirit contact. But then we hit probably my favorite part, which was descriptions of alien homeworlds and planetary landscapes that Dr. Greer has been shown during the CE5 experiences. That I liked a lot. And wouldn't you know it, I actually got a few questions from Kosh. I was so thankful to Kosh for doing an interview with me. I told him I had Dr. Greer coming up, and he said, oh man, I have a few questions I would love to ask Dr. Greer. So I said, give them to me, and I'll slide them into the interview. So we got to some of Kosh's questions on Evos and the Sapphire Project and free energy. And uh, those didn't really go as planned either, but <laughs> it is what it is. I don't really want to spend this wrap-up time picking apart everything he said point by point. It's rude. It's definitely bad form. But <laughs> I guess I already just did it. Should I scrap this wrap-up and start over? Probably. Or maybe this quarantine has just affected my ability to communicate with other people properly. Maybe it's me. I'm out of practice. But I think you can still have a personality clash with someone and also appreciate aspects of the work they do or enjoy a documentary that they made. Regardless, I do thank Dr. Greer for his time and for the long legacy he has of diving deep into the UFO question. I know when you enter into this space, especially in a topic like this, everyone's a critic, so I don't want to pile on too much. And I guess I'll just leave it at that. Check out the film if you're interested. Sign up for Plus if you like the show that I do and want to hear the second hour with Dr. Greer or any of the great guests we have around here. I really, really appreciate and value the audience that we have. And I guess that's it for me. Your move, Space Brothers, Sky Orbs, and Entities at the other end of the CE5 phone line. Your fucking move. Woke up this morning with light in my eyes And then realized it was dark outside It was light coming down 
from the sky I don't know who or why Must be those strangers that come every night Whose saucer-shaped light put people Green footprints that glow in the dark. I hope they get home all right. Hey, Mr. Spaceman, won't you please take me along? I won't do anything This morning I was feeling quite weird I had flies in my beard My toothpaste was smeared I opened my window They'd written my name Said, so long, we'll see Hi, hi, hi.